Good morning. Our scripture this morning is Luke 1, 34 through 38. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we've been doing something a little different this year for Advent, but probably something that we should do every year. We, we've been thinking about the Advent story, the coming of Christ, as a Trinitarian event. We've been thinking of it not just as something that the second person of the Trinity, that Jesus has done, but something that all of the members of the Trinity have done. It was the Father who lovingly sent His Son to redeem the world. It was the Son who willingly came to identify with us. It was the Holy Spirit of God who empowered the Son, who led along Jesus in His human nature. This is a Trinitarian act. And so we've been looking at this very common passage, one that I'm sure if you've been around the church at Christmas time, you've read before. Uh, we've been here in Luke 1, and, and we've been thinking about this Trinitarian act um, as we've looked at this passage. So for example, the first week we looked at verse 26 through 30. We looked at the Father's announcement to Mary through the angel Gabriel. And of course, God comes to her in power, and she's afraid to be around the presence of this angel who represented the presence of the Lord until the angel spoke favor. The favor of the Father is upon you, Mary. And last week, if you were here, we looked at verse 31 through 33, Gabriel's announcement about this son who would come, the son of the most high God. He would be the king in the line of David. He would reign over the house of Jacob. Mary would conceive and bear this son of God who would be the fulfillment of all that God had promised. So we looked at the son last week. And then this week, we read in verse 34, Mary, of course, says, how can this be? I'm a virgin. And then we see in verse 35, the angel says, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born, will be called holy, the son of God. And this text tells us a lot about the Holy Spirit's work in the incarnation, in the advent, in the coming of Jesus. And so three things I want to look at with you today. We want to look at the beginning of the Spirit's work, the middle of the Spirit's work, and the end of the Spirit's work. Let's start at the beginning. You know, this is a critical passage for talking about something that is very important in Christian life and doctrine, and that is the virgin birth. 
Christians believe, as we read here, that Mary was a virgin, that Jesus was born of a virgin. And at different times throughout church history, this was something that has been debated by Christians. Not so much recently, it's not like there's a lot of big virgin birth debates going on, but early in the 20th century, this was a very common debate among Christians. Was Jesus really born of a virgin? And, and maybe the more important question is, why is that so important, right? Why is Jesus's being born of a virgin, why is the virgin birth such a core doctrine in the Christian faith? Well, there's no way around it in the text, right? You, you can't have an honest reading of these accounts of Jesus's birth and conclude that the authors were trying to tell us anything but Jesus was born of a virgin, it comes up here, obviously. It comes up in Matthew's account. In Matthew's account, there's even a little bit more detail because it talks about Joseph's response. Joseph, of course, was betrothed to Mary, to be married to Mary. All of a sudden, she comes up pregnant, and he knows it's not his, right? And so you can imagine his reaction here. He's obviously hurt by this fact. He's disappointed in this. Now, Joseph being an honorable man, though, the text says that he decided to put her away quietly, which means he, he didn't want to shame her in front of the whole culture that would have strictly condemned this. So he decided to put her away quietly until, of course, Gabriel comes to him. There's this whole account of how Gabriel comes to Joseph and announces to him, no, she was not unfaithful to you. This is a baby from the Lord. The Holy Spirit has conceived this baby in her. Uh, Mary was a virgin. The church fathers uh, really thought this was important. In fact, the Nicene Creed, which is kind of the official Christian doctrine statement of the early church, uh, they talk about the virgin birth. And, and I would even argue they talk about it intently. Whenever you read a confessional statement or a, a creed or something like this, they're, they're usually always responding to some wrong belief that's going on at the time, right? And so whenever you read these lines, you can kind of deduce what people might have been believing that wasn't true. And so they're trying to correct people and say, no, Jesus was born of a virgin. And if you read the, the, the lines in the Nicene Creed about Jesus, it says he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, was crucified, died, and I think I left out suffered under Pontius Pilate. Sorry, I, I just wrote this out of memory. Suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day, he rose again. Of all the lines in there, the most detail is given to the virgin birth, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the virgin Mary. So we see this clearly in scripture. Christians have clearly taught this throughout church history. But why? Why is it so important? And I want to give you three reasons. First, the virgin birth is just a sign of the miraculous nature of the birth of Christ. God is visiting humanity. God has become a human to dwell among us, to live among us. God is doing something miraculous in this. Secondly, the virgin birth is incredibly important because it speaks to and explains the two natures of Christ. Jesus is not half God, half man. He is fully God, fully man. He has a full human nature and a full divine nature. We have called this in theology the hypostatic union. The virgin birth is necessary to understand the hypostatic union, which is necessary to understand 
the person of Christ. Now, I want to I give a little aside right here. I was talking to somebody a couple weeks ago, and they said, hey, it, we've loved Christ's covenant. Um, we, uh, we came from a church where the preaching was a little more superficial, and we really like it, and it's nice to have to think about your faith. But then they said, but, you know, do the students like it? Is this okay for the students? Or is it okay for the students that we're making them think? Okay. I want to respond to that real quick in, in case you've had just like some similar thoughts. First of all, if you have, first of all, we don't make you think at Christ's covenant because that's, cause that's like our brand, you know, the church that thinks, you know. <laughs> no, we, we ask you to think about these things because we want you to know God. We want you to love God. I want you to know him in all his fullness and see him in all his beauty and live for his glory like you were designed to live. We want you to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Second thing I would say is don't sell your students short, okay? If you think, man, they make you think of Christ Kevin, I don't know if that's good for students. Your kids are smart. They're not stupid. Like, do you, do you know what they study in school? Like, they study trigonometry and <laughs> chemistry and really hard subjects. And this is a subject. I mean, theology is a science. And where else are they learning this? Where else are they learning to think rightly about the things of God? In the medieval schools, if you go to a European medieval school, like if you go to a school in England, they do college differently there. It's not like you go to, you know, your biology 101 class Monday, Wednesday, Friday. You, you have a supervisor that oversees your, uh, oversees your schooling, and they'll give you books to read, and they'll give you lectures to attend. And so you have to go. Like if you go to Oxford, you can see this. There's a board, and they, you know, list out. Now it, you can look at it online, but they still do the old thing just because it's cool. And they list out all the lectures that are going to happen. They have this big board that lists out all, and they're all in alphabetical order. So the biology lecture is first, and the chemistry lecture, and the economics, you know, it's all in alphabetical order, except the theology lecture. And the theology lecture is always first, because the medieval people that came up with schools believed that theology is the queen of the sciences. If you don't understand who God is, if you understand the nature of God and how he works, you can't know anything. Theology is the queen of the sciences. It is a science. It is something that you should think about, that you should know. And don't sell your kids short. They're smart. And then the third thing I would give you to consider is this. I've never had a conversation. I talk to 20-something-year-olds all the time. That's a big part of my ministry here. I talk to 20-something-year-olds all the time. I've never once had a conversation with a 20-something-year-old that said, my church taught me too much about God. But I've had 100 conversations with a 20-something-year-old that said, with a little hurt and even bitterness, I would say, in their heart, why didn't they teach me this? Why didn't they teach me this? Why, why did they give me this superficial stuff my whole life? Why didn't they ever teach me to think and know the Lord? Didn't they know that my faith was going to need this? So, the hypostatic union. Let's talk about it. This is a very important thing for Christians to understand, that Jesus has two natures. You can't understand the person of Christ without this doctrine. And you can't understand this doctrine without 
the virgin birth. David Mathis writes a nice summary statement on the hypostatic union. He says this, Jesus has two complete natures, one fully human and one fully divine. The doctrine of the hypostatic union teaches that these two natures are united in the one person, in the God-man. Jesus is not two persons. He is one person. The hypostatic union is the joining, mysterious though it may be, of the divine and the human in the one person of Jesus. And I wish I had more time to talk about this, but I say this to say that the reason believing in the virgin birth is so important is because it is what makes sense of the hypostatic union. How do you have this God-man? Well, he has this nature that is divine from the Holy Spirit and this nature that is human from the woman. The Holy Spirit divine came upon the woman. And then third, the third reason that believing in the virgin birth is incredibly important is it explains the sinlessness of Christ. One of the things that Christians believe is that we have all inherited a nature of sin, right? We've all been born with this nature to sin. You don't have to teach people how to sin. In fact, um, there was this famous debate in church history between a guy named Pelagius and a guy named Augustine. And Pelagius did not believe in this nature of sin. Uh, and I had a, a professor one time tell me it's because he didn't have any children, right? <laughs> if, if you have children, believing in the nature of sin becomes a lot easier because it's like, I never taught them to lie. I never taught them to throw a temper tantrum. I never taught them to be totally self-centered. They just know how to do that. And they've inherited it from Adam. They've inherited it from me. But this is the nature of sin. But the virgin birth explains that Jesus didn't inherit Adam's nature. In a sense, Jesus wasn't the son of Adam. He was the son of God. Luke picks up on this. In Luke's genealogy that he gives in Luke 3, people talk about the difference between the genealogy in Matthew and the genealogy in Luke, and people use this as a way to critique the Bible. The, the authors are just using, doing something different. Matthew's giving the genealogy of Joseph, which was traditional, just to show just this Hebrew lineage that Jesus had, even though, of course, the Gospel of Matthew clearly affirms the virgin birth. But Luke, trying to, I think, make this point does not include the paternal line of Jesus. Rather, he includes the maternal line of Jesus. He shows Mary's lineage, and he does something more than Matthew does. He goes all the way back to God. He says that Adam was the son of God. And I think what he's doing there is he's saying, Jesus is the right son of God and the son of Mary. He didn't have a paternal line. He didn't inherit Adam's sin because he wasn't the son of Adam. The virgin birth is incredibly important for Christian doctrine. It explains the miraculous event of God's coming. It explains the hypostatic union, the nature of Christ, the two natures of Christ, and it explains the sinlessness of Christ's human nature. But beyond just affirming the virgin birth, this passage, I believe, speaks to the Spirit's work in the Christian life. Jesus was born of the power of the Holy Spirit. You could say it this way. Jesus became a human in the same way that we become a new human. Or you could say, Jesus experienced birth 
in the same way that we experience the new birth or Jesus's generation happened in the same way of our regeneration. And how did it happen? By the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came upon Mary and Jesus was born. When the Holy Spirit comes upon us, we are reborn or regenerate or given a spiritual life. It is the Holy Spirit of God that gives us a spiritual life. And you can't be a Christian unless you have a spiritual life. And so the question becomes, do you have a spiritual life? Are you born of the Spirit? Are you regenerate? Do you really know God by the power of God, by the power of the third person of the Holy Spirit? Do you have a spiritual life? Or do you just know things about God, right? Do you just believe in some sort of moral framework? Do you have a spiritual life? You know, Jonathan Edwards, he was a pastor in the 18th century, Northampton, Massachusetts. And during his pastorate, there was this great spiritual awakening. We, we actually refer to it in history as the Great Awakening that happened in America. And it was an amazing time in American history where uh, uh, there was this outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God on many. People were coming to know the Lord. People were, were being reborn. They were attaining, if you will, this spiritual life. Now, the interesting thing about the Great Awakening is it wasn't happening because the people were getting new information. Everyone in New England at this time knew the basic facts of Christianity. Everyone had some sort of basic understanding of what Christians taught. But yet in this time, there was this spiritual awakening through the preaching of Edwards and George Whitfield that brought the people to life. They had a spiritual life. There was a depth and a weightiness about them that was new. It was a great awakening. This became known as the New Light Movement. And it was critiqued. There was a guy named Charles Chauncey who was a pastor in Boston. And he kind of believed you know, Christianity is not all this spiritual talk. It's moral framework, right? So we have this good kind of moral framework and that's what Christianity is. It's knowing the moral framework and living by this kind of moral structure. It's not this spiritual movement. Chancy became known as an old lighter. So you kind of these old lighters, these new lighters. But then on the other side of the new light, there was this sensationalism happening, right? All this kind of new birth was happening. And so there became all of this sensationalism that started to emerge. People said, well, you can't know the spirit unless there's a physical reaction or unless you shout out in some way. And so what Edwards did was that he wrote this really helpful book. And the book is called Distinguishing Marks of a Work of the Spirit of God. And so as a pastor, what he, what he would do is he would notice when spiritual life started happening in the life of his congregants in a way that really changed them, in a way that really produced godly fruit in their life. And so he gave these marks, these negative marks, and the negative marks aren't necessarily that these things are bad, but they just can't tell you whether this person's really had an experience with God or not. And then positive marks, 
marks that you should look for, that, that are evidences of regeneration or the new, bar, uh, the new birth. So let's look at some of his negative marks. One is bodily effects. So things like tears, if you cry, or uh, if you have a convulsion, or if you break into laughter, these, these might accompany a work of the Holy Spirit, but they're not necessarily evidence that the Spirit's really had any work in your life. He says the presence of much noise about the Christian life. Just because you're talking a lot about the Christian faith or into Christian things, these aren't necessarily evidences that the Spirit has actually brought you this new life, this regeneration. Number three, the stirring of imaginations and emotions, right? So, of course, sometimes people have emotional responses to the things of the Lord, but emotionalism is not necessarily a mark of the Holy Spirit. Number four, overconfidence or arrogance toward the things of the Lord. A combative or arrogant spirit is not a mark of the Spirit's work in your life. I think there's actually a good warning to us, especially in this day. I think people have confused true Christian courage with haughty worldliness. But he also gives positive marks, positive evidences that someone actually has had an encounter with the Holy Spirit of God, that someone actually has gained the spiritual life. So here are some of those. He says, the elevated level of people's esteem for Jesus how do you know if the Holy Spirit has taken root in your life? Do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus more? Do you esteem Jesus more? Do you depend on Jesus more? Do you look to Jesus more? Do you love Jesus? I had a professor tell me one time, I, I thought this was interesting. He said, if you ever see a church with a dove on the side of it, you can know that the Holy Spirit isn't there. Now that may be a little overstated, but what he's responding to is John 16, 14, where Jesus explains to us that the Spirit glorifies me. Of course, we need to be talking about the third person of the Trinity, but one of the evidences of the Holy Spirit's actual work in your life is not so much that you're talking about the Holy Spirit all the time, but you talk about Jesus. An elevated esteem for Jesus. Number two, another evidence, a hatred of sin well, regeneration doesn't remove sin from our life completely, what a regenerated heart does is its eyes are opened to the reality of sin. There is a hatred for sin. Here's what I, here's what I like to say. You, you can't sin and enjoy it. If you're really a Christian, if the Spirit of God is really at work in your life, you can still sin, but you can't sin and really enjoy it. There's a weightiness to it. There's a... There's a, there's a conviction about it. You want to get away from the things of the Lord if you're living in sin. You certainly don't want to be around them. Is the Spirit at work in your life? Number three, this is interesting too, a greater regard for the Holy Scripture. How do you know that the Spirit is at work in your life? Do you love the Word of God? Do you hunger to hear from God? It makes sense. If we really believe in the inspiration that the Holy Spirit of God inspired the Bible, it only makes sense that a true spiritual life would lead us to love the Bible. And number four, a spirit of love to God and to God's people. If the Holy Spirit is alive in your life, he leads you to love God and to love his people. Do you love God and love his people? 
This is why you love being here. You love being around the people of God. You love going to your community group. You love praying with your friends. And I would just say, if you don't, if there is not a hunger to read around the people of God, that is evidence that the spirit of God is not in your life, that you're not regenerate. If, if there's some active sin that you know is sin in your life and there's no conviction of it, you might know Christian principles. You might go to church. You might have been baptized. But I would argue that you, you probably haven't been born again. You have an emptiness about your spirituality. If you don't have esteem for the person of Jesus, if you don't love the scripture, do you have a spiritual life? Now, you may be saying, well, maybe I don't have a spiritual life. Well, what does this mean? How do, I, how do I get a spiritual life? And the answer I would give you is this. The Spirit of God always accompanies the gospel. Where the gospel is heard and thought about, the Spirit of God in those places is, is most alive, is most able to come in and change your life. Martin Luther wrote this, the Holy Spirit is not given except in with and by faith in Jesus Christ. Faith, moreover, comes only through God's word or gospel, which preaches Christ. So we've talked about the beginning of the Spirit's work. What about the middle of the Spirit's work? Verse 35 says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High God will overshadow you. And therefore the child born will be called Holy. This is an interesting thing to think about. The holiness of Christ. How did Jesus live this holy life? How did Jesus live a sinless life in his human form? You know, Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted, just as we are, yet without sin. How, how is this verse true? This is a good verse to think about. How is Jesus genuinely tempted? And how does he overcome sin? How is he genuinely tempted? I mean, if he, if he was divine, you know, then how could he really be tempted? And it's because we believe in the human nature of Christ. Jesus was fully man. And because he was fully man, he was fully tempted. He was genuinely tempted. But how did he come over? How did he overcome his temptation? How did Jesus remain pure? When he would get tempted, would he peel back his divine nature and say, aha, you know, not me. How, how, how was he, how did he overcome temptation? How did Jesus tempted in every way just as we are yet not sin? And the answer is, and you see this in the word of God over and over, by the word and by the spirit. How did Jesus overcome temptation? by the word and by the spirit. We don't have time to look at it right now, but look at the temptation of Christ. Go read the accounts, Matthew 4, Luke 4. Read them this afternoon. And what are the themes that you see over and over again? Jesus, when he's being tempted, what does he do? He quotes scripture. He says, the word of God that's been revealed to us by the power of the Holy Spirit says this. And another, another feature that you see in those passages is that in those times of temptation, he's being ministered to by the Holy Spirit of God. And the good news for you is if you are in Christ, the word and the spirit, the same 
devices, the same things that were available to Christ, the same reasons that he overcame temptation and was able to walk in righteousness and in holiness, the same things that were available to Jesus are available to you. The word and the spirit. And I think this leads us to ask, well, how does the spirit minister to us? How does, how does the spirit speak to us? How does the spirit move in our lives? Now, the clearest section that we have in the Bible about the work of the Holy Spirit is in John 14 and John 16. Jesus is telling his disciples about the Holy Spirit who is going to come. And in both sections, I love this, the, the Spirit is the, the word that Jesus used. Sometimes it's translated the helper. Sometimes it's translated the counselor. And I like this. This is a helpful definition. It's a helpful translation. The helper, the counselor, He's going to come and help you. You ever go to counseling? You ever go to counseling? You should. Some of y'all probably, you, really, you need to. Uh, and we have a great counseling center at Christ's Covenant. Here's Lou Priola. I see you in the back. He's wearing a turtleneck. I mean, who doesn't want to get counseled by a guy in a turtleneck? But, um, but here's what Lou will do. I'll go ahead and I'm going to let the cat out of the bag, okay? I'm going to go ahead and give Lou's secret away right now, okay? Lou's not going to give you all this new insight. You know what he's going to do? He's going to take what God has said in the word, what you already have access to, and he's going to help apply it to your life. That's what a counselor does. You ever go to counseling? You've gone to counseling. You realize like, why did I pay all this money? Our counseling center is free, by the way. You're like, why did I pay it for members? And if you're not a member, we'll work something out. But but, uh, you're like, why did I pay all this money? They didn't tell me anything I didn't know, but what the counselor does, it's not that they're telling you stuff you don't know. They apply what you do know to your life. They take what you do know. They take the information you do have access to and they say, here's how, here's how it's going to work out in your life. And this is what the spirit does. This is how the spirit moves. It's, it's not that he's bringing new revelation us all the time. He's taking what God has revealed in his word and he applies it to our heart. This is the Christian life. This is when the Spirit is really at work in you. Is when he's taking what God's revealed and he's saying, this is what it means to you. This is what it means to you. You know, last week I heard this great story. There was someone here. They left our service. They went and found a friend of theirs that they had had some discord with. And they confessed sin to that person and that relationship was restored. And they told me what they confessed. Nowhere in the sermon did I ever mention that sin. I didn't mention it. I didn't talk about it. We talked about Jesus last week. But God, by his word, as they went home and meditated on the satisfaction that they should have in Christ, the Holy Spirit started to press in their life and convict their heart, and he led them to this act of confession, repentance, reconciliation. What is that? That's not just the transfer of information, right? I didn't just give them moral instructions to do. No, that is communion with God. And when you're communing with God and you know God and you have a spiritual life, this is what the Spirit does. The, The Word activates His ministry to you to apply His Word, the Word of God, the Word of Christ, the Word of the Spirit to your life. He's a counselor. The Bible says he convicts the world. I like this. You know, John 16, I I don't have a a slide. Turn with me to John 16. 
We can't talk about the Holy Spirit without going to John 16. John 16, 8. Many of you have heard me talk about this before, but it's one of these passages that I think about all the time. It says, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. This is what the Holy Spirit does. He convicts the world. He he shines light. He he brings these truths to bear in our hearts. Verse 9, he convicts the world concerning sin because they do not believe in me. You know what sin is? You know, every time you've ever sinned, you know why you do? Because you don't believe. It's a lack of faith. You don't see Jesus rightly. If you could only see Jesus rightly, and the new heavens, new earth, we'll never sin. You know why? Because we'll see Jesus rightly. We'll see how good he is and how beautiful he is. And this is what the Spirit does. He shines light on Jesus. And and when we see his glory and we see who we are in light of him, there's conviction But he also leads us in righteousness. He convicts the world concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you'll see me no longer. What Jesus is saying is here is I've been a model to you. You've seen righteousness in me, but now I'm going to the Father. And so how is the ministry of Christ's righteousness going to continue? The Holy Spirit is going to remind us of the character, nature, word of Christ. This is what Jesus says in John 14. He will bring to your remembrance everything that I've said to you. And everything that I've said to you is everything that Jesus has said to us by the inspired word of God. And he convicts the world concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I think this is one of the greatest ministries of the Holy Spirit in your life. Here's what I would say it. Here's how I'd say it. He reminds you that this world is not ultimate, that the ruler of this world is going to be judged, and that one day, if you really have communion with him, you'll have communion with him forever and with the Father and with the Son He he reminds us that God is going to bring the world to its intended end and that we will be, those of us in Christ, we will be with him. Now, the most amazing verse, we didn't, we skipped it, is verse seven, where Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go, here's that word, the helper, the counselor, will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. You catch that verse? Some of y'all have heard me say this before, but I, I've often said, if you surveyed Family Feud style, a hundred Christians, and said, would you rather have Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, with you, or the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, in you, dwelling within you, which would you choose? And I bet <coughs> most Christians would say, well, of course, I'd rather have Jesus with me than the Holy Spirit in me, whatever that means. And this is because you're not born again. This is because you're not regenerate. This is because you have no idea what we're talking about here. You have no idea what God's done for you by calling you into communion with himself, by the power of the Holy Spirit within you who convicts you, who counsels you, who encourages you. You don't know what you have. I I heard uh, Tim Keller give this illustration one time, kind of talking about something similar, and I thought it was good. You know, in Lord of the Rings, Bilbo gives Frodo the mithril shirt. You know what I'm talking about? It's this, like, coat of armor, kind of, but it's light. 
Mithril's the most valuable substance. It's stronger than gold, but it's lighter than a feather. And if you remember in the movie, like right after Frodo, uh, Bilbo gives Frodo the mithril coat, uh, you know, Bilbo sees the ring and he like starts to go, you know, it's kind of scary. But anyway, um, so you kind of forget about the shirt, you know, but Frodo's wearing it. And then later, and he wears it and he's, he's happy. He knows it's cool, but he doesn't really know what he has. But then later Gandalf explains to him, that shirt, mithril, it's the most, it's the most valuable substance. That shirt is, has more value than the entire shire and everything in it. What if you were wearing a shirt that had more value than the entire world and everything in it? And this is a decent illustration, but it doesn't even come close to describing what you actually have. Communion with God. The power of God within you and the third person of God indwelling your life who comes to grow you and mature you and, and bring you into the likeness of Christ. So finally, we've looked at the beginning of the Spirit's work and the middle of the Spirit's work. Let's look at the end of the Spirit's work. Look at Mary here, this little girl God has said to her through Gabriel something amazing. You, a virgin, are going to have a baby. He's going to be the son of the most high. He's going to redeem everything. He's going to be the king in David's line. He's going to be over the house of Jacob. He said this amazing thing to her. And I love her response. Mary just says, behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. I mean, there was a lot at stake for Mary here. She knew that there would be shame. And what kind of a story is she going to tell? Oh, yeah, the Holy Spirit came upon me. That's what happened here. She knew that this was a huge responsibility. I mean, in theory, like all of her people are counting on her to be able to pull this off. Behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. Whatever, whatever God wants from me, let it be to me whatever he wills. And you know, this is, this is the end of the Spirit's work. This is, this is what God desires for me and for you and for our church. To be mature, to be strong, to be able to withstand. You know, the, the, the kinds of words that the Bible uses, oaks of righteousness, to be these stable oaks of righteousness. Or the other one that I love, the, the house that's built on the rock. You know that story, end of the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus talks about two houses. And you can't tell the difference between the houses, right? From the distance, they both just look like beautiful, amazing houses. And you get a little closer, and you realize that one's built on the sand, and one's built on the rock. And you can only tell a difference when the storm comes. And when the storm comes, the house on the sand collapses, but the house on the rock stands strong. You know, when I look out at this room right now, I can't tell, it's hard for me to tell the difference between which of you are spirit-filled persons, which of you are spiritual persons, and which of you are just here for the good community and the, you know, maybe I'll meet somebody neat, 
Maybe I'll get a good little lesson. Maybe I'll get some practical takeaways. It's hard for me to tell. I can't tell the difference between you guys. Between who's really born again, who really knows God and is communing with God and who's just here for the stuff. You, you all look great to me. But you know when you can tell? When the storm comes. When the storm comes. And that's when the people that really know God get stronger. And the people that don't know God fade away. You know, there's some students in here. And the storm of leaving your parents' house is coming. And you'll have all these things. You'll be free. And there's this whole, like, YOLO and everything else. That's when we'll know, right? That's when we'll know which of you really knows the Lord, really desires to commune with God, or which of you built your house on a sand. You know, I'm talking to the, to the young man, young woman in here that's here and maybe you're going to meet someone and it's a great place to meet people. But maybe your house isn't really built in the sand. You meet someone and you start having kids and gosh, it's, oh man, there's diapers and there's stuff and you got to take care of them. Your life's so busy and then they get in sports and there's tournaments. And the next thing you know, you get to the end of your 30s and your spiritual life is dead. I can't tell you how many folks I talk to that their 30s kill them. <laughs> you know, they, they had a good college ministry, but then they got, to the, they got in their 30s and the fumes of their spirituality faded out because there was no spiritual hunger for the Lord. They got swept away by a storm. I'm talking to some of you that the storm of success is coming. The storm of success is coming. You're going to do so well in your career. You're going to make more money than you ever thought you could. You're going to live in this amazing house. And all of those things are going to become ultimate to you. You're going to start trusting your hunches. You're not going to trust the Lord. You're going to say, I'm really smart. Where's your house built? Who are you communing with? Who are you actually? I'm talking to some of you who the storm of a, a really big sin is going to come your way. You're going to blow it. And on that day... Are you really going to believe the gospel? Are you really going to believe that God loves you? Are you going to believe that your righteousness is not in your righteousness, but in Christ's righteousness? Or are you going to be filled with shame? Are you going to distance yourself from the people of your God? Or is your heart going to get hard toward those things? I'm talking to some of you who the storm of disease or just this ongoing problem that just won't go away is with you. Is it, going to make your, is it going to make you stronger? Is it going to make your house stronger? Or is it going to tear your house down? You know, I always say, you know, when Paige and I kind of first got the church going, we said, man, Atlanta needs more great 60-year-olds. You know, we have some great 60-year-olds here, but there's not enough of you guys. Where are all the 60-year-olds? Where are all the people that have been walking with the Lord a long time. You know, there's, we, we always talk about these people, I mean, they have more time than they've ever had, more money than they've ever had, more wisdom than they've ever had, and they spend all of that on themselves. And we say, those are the kind of people that should be pouring their lives into these other people. Those are the kind of people that should be discipling people. Those are the people that should be pulling away and saying, aha, we've made it now. Do you really know God? Do you really believe that your life is going to go on forever and forever? We want you to be great 60-year-olds. I don't want you to get 
torn down by the storm of the American dream? What's your house built on? Do you really know the Lord? And you know, you know how you become a great 60-year-old? Is you walk by the Spirit when you're 25 and 35 and 45 and 55, and then all of a sudden, you have all this wisdom. You're a giant. You're an oak of righteousness. Or you're like Mary here, that God can use greatly because you just say, my life is the Lord's. Whatever God wants to do with me. But you know, this, this, there's, a, there's a good word in this passage, an encouraging word, and I want to give you this good word as we close. Mary, even as faithful as she is, the, the angel Gabriel still gives her a very encouraging word here. He says to her, Mary, it's as if he's saying to her, Mary, I know this is hard to believe, but Elizabeth, your relative, you know how old she is? She's conceived too. And we didn't read it. But you know what Mary does as soon as Gabriel leaves? Next story. Just read it. Next thing. You can look down right now. She goes to see Elizabeth. (laughs) She's already said this faithful thing. I'm the Lord's whatever things. But she's like, but I'm going to go make sure this Elizabeth thing's just right here. It's as if Gabriel was saying to her, someone's gone before you in this, Mary. I've been doing big things that people can't believe for a long time. Go see Elizabeth. Somebody's gone before you in this. And I would say this to you. Someone's gone before you too. And there's a lot of models in the Christian life that have gone before you, but the real person that's gone before you is our Lord Jesus, who came fully divine, yet fully human, tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he learned to depend on the word and the spirit. He lived by dependence on the spirit and his ministry and his life, and he lived with courage and compassion and conviction and grace, and he lived with poise, and he never sinned, and he loved his father. And even when he faced the greatest test of all, the, 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 the test of taking on our sin, of being put out in our place so that we could be brought in, even when he faced that test, he faced it with the joy that was set before him. He looked to his father's glory. He endured. And now he's been raised. He's been raised. There's one who's gone before you. And Christians believe that in the same way that Jesus was raised and now he is seated at the right hand of the Father, so too in him, by faith in him, we will be. And so I can't think of a better way to end our service today than by celebrating believers' baptism, by seeing a sign of that. We're not going to watch actual resurrections today, but we're going to look at pictures of a resurrection We're going to look at a sign of a resurrection and we're going to be reminded in them this is what Jesus does for us. He has saved us from the depths of our sin and he's called us to new life. In him we've overcome death. So let me pray and then we'll hear these testimonies of these who are coming. Father, I pray that we would be the kind of people who live by faith that the spirit of God would so come to us now. Lord, I pray for regeneration even happen now as men and women and, and younger people here see how much you love them in Christ. The Spirit's regenerating work would come alive in their hearts. You'd make us new people, Lord. The kind of people that know you and love you and live for you, Lord. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.